welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Welcome uh, this evening to Summer Series, or maybe we should title that Something Close to Summer Series. It's good to uh, gather with you this evening as we make our way into another new year. As we make our way into a new year, we'll just um, work on this boominess. Just hang on a second. I'll just keep rambling. Talk, talk, one, two. Nice to see some familiar faces back there. Hey, as we do make our way into a new year, the question a lot of people are asking is, can a nation or perhaps a society at large be changed by a few short words? Around the world, people are anxious that words, a few sentences, maybe close to 140 characters, could it start a war, cripple an economy? Words have power. Words used well have power to bring life, to awaken dreams, to heal hearts. Yet words can do damage. Words can tear down. Words can build walls between peoples and cultures. It only takes a few words to send a big message. This evening, I have the privilege of continuing our series entitled Big Messages from Little Books. The idea of this short series is to explore some of the tweet-sized books in sacred scripture. Books that are easily overlooked when we turn to the stories, the grand stories of Genesis or the Gospels, or overlooked as we pause to consider the prophetic utterances of Isaiah or Jeremiah, really big books. Scattered throughout the canon of scripture, we find a whole bunch of really small books. Some hardly take more than a page. But though they are made up of only a few words, their messages are anything but small. Can these short pieces of text have much to say to us today? Can these little letters and petite prophecies house within them big message that, messages that might impact us, shape us, grab a hold of our imaginations, and be for us wise, world on, wise words on a pilgrim path? Might these thin books actually turn out to be quite thick stories that reach into us and shape us in profound ways? I believe they can. And because I do, I would like you to turn to a very small book found right at the back of the New Testament, just before the book of Revelation. Just there you'll find three short books titled 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And this evening we're going to explore together the middle of these ones the second of these. If there is a tweet in Scripture, this comes close to it. It is one chapter long and comprised of 13 verses. And because it's short, we can read it together as we start to explore what it's all about. So let's turn to the screen and read 2 John together. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, and truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. 
This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Jesus does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. What I want to do tonight is to dig into this little book in an attempt to hear what's being said, not just at the surface level, but to try and feel the weight and the significance of it and to be confronted by the implications that it might make upon us. My aim tonight is to briefly explore this text in the hope that it might challenge our thinking, our loving, our living. It might challenge the very shape of our faith. And in doing so, by the end of it, we might understand a little bit more about what it is to be the people of God, to be salt and light. So how are we gonna do this? We're gonna ask a couple of key questions. First, why has the author linked this command to love one another with the issue of denying Jesus came in the flesh? How are these two things related? How does the author connect this theological controversy to the command of love? And given that uh, Jesus is pretty famous for welcoming the outsider, eating with the tax collector and sinner, I think it's appropriate we ask uh, the question about the author's instruction to exclude people, to not show hospitality. How might we make sense of this? Uh, What is the author of 2 John really saying here? Because we can, um, before we explore these questions, it's pretty important to take a brief look at the author and audience, to take a look at how this book has been put together and how it might relate to 1st and 3rd John. So who here likes mail? Who likes getting letters? Anyone? Letters. It's kind of a thing that we don't get very often anymore, especially like handwritten ones. No one likes getting bills. I'm not talking about bills. I'm talking about letters. Letters... I ask this because letters are really, really important in New Testament times. As the good news of Jesus spread throughout the Mediterranean world and started, the gospel started taking root and little churches started sprouting up in cities and towns everywhere, letters became a really, really important means of uh, leading and pastoring these growing movement, this growing movement. Letters became something of a lifeline. Through letters, churches that were suffering under the weight of persecution were encouraged Doctrine was corrected. Uh, Church instruction we're giving to churches uh, about how to be a prophetic people amidst a community and a culture that would challenge their allegiance to Christ at every turn. Much of the New Testament is made up of letters. Each one points to real people in real life settings, conflicts and joys and heartaches experienced by those who were pioneering the church in its earliest days. Second John, like each of these letters, should not be prized away from the story and circumstances into which it was written. So we will attempt to hear what's going on in the backdrop. Like most letters, Second John begins with a greeting. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. 
Grace, mercy, peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. An elect lady, her children, an elder, what is this? Is this some kind of personal little note that just somehow got collected into the sacred scriptures? We don't have time to explore all the theories, and there are numerous theories about what this means. Um, and not all, not all uh, scholars would agree, but I think there's enough evidence to point to the fact that this, this John is John who wrote the fourth gospel. There's debate about that. But I think that is the most sensible option. An elect lady, her children, this, some have suggested, is a certain one person, one individual. I think it makes the most sense, again, to say that this is a way of talking about the church an elect lady and her children. And we get a little bit of backup from this down at verse 13 at the very bottom where John says, the children of your elect sister greet you. Or as Eugene Peterson puts in the message, everyone here in your sister congregation sends greetings. And how are they related to each other? First, second, and third John. Um, Luke Timothy Johnson proposes an idea which I think is pretty good. As you read it, it seems to make a lot of sense that Third John is a letter that confirms that the guy who's carrying this little parcel of letters is a good dude and legit. Second John is uh, something like a cover letter that kind of gives us a little welcome. This is the letter, this is what I'm talking about. And first John is like the sermon that's gonna be preached on the Sunday in front of the people. So um, a little package, a little collection of letters. I suggest that it's a package of correspondence sent by John to a community that is facing crisis. John, the elder pastor, is chiefly concerned with the health and witness of a community and intends for this cover letter to be read to the congregation as a precursor to a sermon that was to follow. He was, to see, he was seeking to encourage them to walk in the light and the truth of Jesus' command, even amidst fear and anxiety that they were experiencing due to this new teaching about a Jesus who didn't have a body. This cover letter, if you like, is kind of the tweetable version of John 1. So now we know this, we can ask our first question. Why has John connected the command to love one another with the theological controversy regarding Christ's incarnation? These two aspects of John's letter, a community marked by love and a controversy regarding the humanity of Christ, are linked by a little word found at the beginning of verse 7. The word for. Love one another, walk according to his commandments, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. The New Living Translation helps us a little bit, makes it a little bit clearer. It says, love one another, walk according to his commandments. I say this because many deceivers have gone out. Here we have the pivot upon which the whole book swings. This is like the turning point. John is effectively saying, in response to those who are teaching this false doctrine, I want to remind you to love one another. But why is loving one another the response John desires? What is John on about? To get inside this, I think we need to do two things. First, get a clear understanding of what John means when he says, love one another. And second, I think we need to explore the heresy itself to understand what's at stake and how it's impacting the community. So first, let's, let's look at the controversy. Why is John concerned? 
that Jesus came in the flesh is one of the most paramount, it's, the, it's of most paramount importance to our Christian faith. If Jesus was not both fully human and fully God, then the good news, quite simply, is not as good. Our salvation depends upon God himself taking on flesh and blood, the creator becoming part of creation in order to buy it back. John begins his gospel account with a bold statement regarding this claim. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul puts things this way, right into the church at Colossae. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. To deny that Jesus came in a real body is to step out of sync with the scriptures. Therefore, those who taught this heresy were a real challenge to the fledgling church. Those who taught this heresy undermined the very gospel that had the power to change, save, to heal, and to transform. The implications or the fruit of such a denial of this orthodox position are many and varied, and to explore them would take us all night, and probably all next week, and possibly the week after that. Perhaps we'll keep it real simple and just say that to deny Jesus came in a real body has implications in two directions, vertical and horizontal. The vertical direction being our relationship with the Father, the horizontal direction being our relationship with others, with people and place, our relationship with the created order. And I think John is concerned about both. As I just pointed out, on the vertical relationship, things seriously break down if Jesus is not fully God and fully human. There is no atonement for sin if Jesus has not given his blood as a ransom, if he has not paid the price in full with his own life. So John is alarmed and deeply concerned at this false teaching because it undermines the message of forgiveness and redemption and the possibility of a relationship at the vertical with the Father. The implications that run on a horizontal direction are also really big. The incarnation is a radical affirmation about the goodness of creation. Jesus taking on flesh is hugely important because it tells us that this world matters. This world of matter matters. This world is the arena in which the redemptive work is taking place. This world is the place into which the kingdom of God is coming. This is the theater in which the spirit of God is operating. In other words, our faith is not primarily about somewhere else, some place in the sky. It is about here. It is lived out in these bodies. It is expressed in these relationships. So if Christ did not come in a real body and only appeared to be human, then the particularities of time and place can be neglected. The fact that he touched lepers, the fact that he put his fingers in ears, the fact that he used spit and mixed it with the dust of the earth and then wiped it in some man's eyes to, to heal them, we can kind of push that stuff to the periphery. If the word did not become flesh, then everything about the earthy, physical, relational, material, human ministry becomes secondary, somewhat irrelevant, and therefore our following in his footsteps and imitating his works loses, our, his losing, loses its grounding and rootedness to real world, earthy events with people. Jesus is free then to become an abstraction, a concept a theory, perhaps just a good idea. 
What John understood is that we believe, what we believe about Jesus dictates how we live. That is, our theology dictates the shape of our spirituality. If this false teaching was allowed to spread as a sickness through the church, it would continue to cause anxiety within the church regarding salvation. And it would undermine a Christianity that had always and was to always have concrete, physical, material, relational, this world effect. What we believe about Jesus ultimately shapes our behavior and practice, our spirituality. John is aware that the behavior and practice of a community who deny Christ's humanity most often do not reflect God's view of humanity and have very little room for love one another in the way that Christ commanded it. I want to suggest that a disembodied Jesus, that is a Jesus who only appears human, leads to a disembodied spirituality. And a disembodied spirituality, a spirituality that does not intersect the material world, cannot be chiefly concerned with neighbor and is almost always concerned with ecstatic experiences. Escapism rather than evangelism tends to be individualistic rather than communal. So John is urgently, urgently testifying to the fact that Jesus is not a theory. Jesus is not an abstraction. Jesus is not just an idea. He starts his sermon. Remember that we're reading a cover letter here. We just have to sometimes reference a sermon that is really, really important in understanding the cover letter. He starts the sermon, we have seen, we have heard, we have touched concerning the word of life. Keith Anderson comments, Christian spirituality is grounded in gospel good news announcements that God has shown up in the particularity of one man, a first century bilingual, dark-skinned religious Jew born into a family. He notes that this family uh, has been political refugees as they escaped persecution from a king named Herod. They returned to a small town and they practiced the religion of their culture and later, This one man was sought out to be a teacher. And Anderson goes on, that's where the trouble begins. Jesus is not an abstraction. Jesus' story keeps spirituality from becoming an exercise in imagination where we create God into whatever image we choose. The particularity of story keeps us from customizing God. Customizing God. This is what the false teachers were doing. They were changing the story, and by doing so, they were sowing the seeds of what was later called Gnosticism. And it's important that we understand a little about Gnosticism because Gnostic belief, behavior, and practice are exactly what John is rallying against. So to give a loose description, and this is a very loose description of Gnosticism, I'll say this. It is a religious system that advanced a really strongly dualistic understanding of reality. The material world, the stuff, material world, um, that's seen as evil and inferior, while the spirit realm defines good. The inferior and evil material world does not come from the high God of the spiritual realm, but from the inferior being. It's the work of a demiurge or a lesser spiritual being. Those elect few who this hidden God, the superior being, have revealed special knowledge, because gnosis means knowledge, the special knowledge, those people and only those people would be rescued from this wicked world of flesh and matter. 
The Gnostics believed to have a special relationship with God based on this secret knowledge. To them, they saw that Jesus was divine, but he was a divine revealing being who brings knowledge, and therefore he is a way to salvation. Gnostics emphasize the spiritual life to such an extreme that meaning and significance could not be found in material things. The created world did not matter. It was deemed as less and evil. And in fact, it was basically a prison from which one's immortal soul was to escape. Very Greek in its thinking. Such a dualism played out, and can I suggest continues to play out, in two characteristic ways. First, there were those who translated their negative view of the material world, the negative view of their body, into licentious, extremely liberal behavior. Because they saw themselves as only spiritual beings and that their body was of such little value, they believed, or they concluded, that it does not matter what you do with your body, so your spirit remains unaffected. So the constraints are off. They are liberated to indulge in the most deviant and wicked behavior for at most sinners just a bodily sickness. So they can make the claim that they are without sin, even though they're indulging in all sorts of stuff. Secondly, the belief that the material world is evil and acquiring special knowledge is the way to escape from it gives rise to a complete disinterest, disrespect, and denial of God's good creation. Remember in Genesis, God said, this is good. It's a denial of both people and place. Such a system of belief leads to a disconnection from neighbor. There remains no mandate for mission. There's no interest in creating a better world, a better society in which people can flourish. There remains no reason to care for creation. Spirituality, instead of being about loving God and loving neighbor, becomes escapism, the pursuit of a secret. As we pay attention to John's sermon, 1 John, we will notice that John is seeking to comfort and reassure his audience in light of exactly these Gnostic characteristics. These seem to be playing out and getting traction within the community that he's addressing. Behind the words of John's sermon, we can hear anxious questions of those who are questioning their salvation. They're worried they're not spiritual enough. And we can hear the confusion of those uh, around, about morals and ethics. And this new teaching has kind of sparked these confusion that's taking place within the community. We can hear that this false teaching about a disembodied Jesus was leading to a disembodied spirituality that instead of loving brother and neighbor, sought to be free of moral constraints and effectively was just an excuse, an excuse from any responsibility towards the other. What then is John's response? Well, in his sermon, John chapter one, he reassures those who are worried about uh, that they're not spiritual enough He reassures them and says, don't worry, you've got knowledge. Knowledge came and does come by the power of the Holy Spirit. He also reassures those who are confused about, because their friends have started making claims about that they can indulge in all sorts of sexual stuff or sin or whatever else, and they say that they're without sin. And John says to them, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Those who truly know God don't make sin their habit. But all that reassurance is in his sermon. 
And we're addressing, we're exploring tonight the cover letter, 2 John. And in the cover letter, he can't go into it that deep. So instead, he simply reminds them to love one another. He doesn't suggest that they engage in a big theological debate. Rather, he calls them back to what they have heard from the beginning. So if love one another is John's response, John's response to counter heresy, what does John really mean when he says, love one another? Well, given the fear and anxiety and the turmoil that this church was feeling, there's no doubt that John must mean at the surface level, at the most simplest of levels, love one another. <laughs> we need only to read John's gospel to see that John is all about um, a community. He sees the church as a community of loving friendship centered around the person of Jesus. The pain that this church he's addressing um, is feeling, the divided friends and families, would of course needed the warmth and affection of a loving community. But I wonder if John might be pointing to a lot more than this. I wonder if John might be reminding the church of the very shape of their Christianity. Could it be that he is reminding them about how their faith plays out on the ground, of how they are to be in the world? Why do I say this? Because John tells us that this is love. This is love, that we walk according to his, Jesus' commands that we've heard from the beginning. Or as the New Living translates it, love means doing what God has commanded. And in 1 John, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus lived. So loving one another is, in John's mind, equated to living as Jesus lived, walking as Jesus walked, following in his commandments, following his teaching. John sees that love and obedience hold hands, they're not to be separated, they are almost synonymous in what John's saying. To love is to obey Christ's teaching. And Jesus taught us to love one another, and he taught us to love neighbor, and he even taught us to love our enemies. So by making that connection, this connection between love and obedience to Christ's teaching, John brings into view the very identity, our very identity as the people of God. We are a community of love. We are those who are called out to be a light in the world, to reflect God's character into the world, to be a blessing to the nations. John is reminding his audience of who they really are in Christ. If we are in Christ, we have also, we also know that we are in Abraham. Those words that were addressed to Abraham about being a blessing to the nations are now addressed to us. As Christopher Wright points out, for if we are in Christ, we are in Abraham, heirs of the promise God made to him and the responsibility God laid upon him. That is, we are called to be a peculiar people who live by a different standard, a people who reflect the God who is radically different from all the false gods of our neighbors. To love one another is to walk in the way of the Lord, the way Jesus showed us. Because God's love, God, God, sorry, God loves the world and he is on a mission to redeem it and to renew all things. And he is doing so through you and me, through the church, through the body of Christ. Therefore, the shape of our spirituality 
our beliefs and practices, what that looks like in a day-to-day earthbound lives, that's what matters. How we live matters. How our lives reflect uh, God matters. How we live reflects the God we worship. We see that with the Gnostics and their licentious living. Again, Christopher Wright says it really, really well. He says this, the community God seeks for the sake of his mission is to be a community shaped by his own ethical character with specific attention to righteousness and justice in a world filled with oppression and injustice. Only such a community can be a blessing to the nations. So I think that we are justified in reading John's reminder to love one another as a reminder to be a certain kind of people, a people shaped by God's character, a people who reflect God's character into the world through doing righteousness and justice, abiding in his teaching, obedience to the command that we have been given from the beginning. And righteousness and justice, we must note, do not equate to a disembodied spirituality. Quite the opposite. Doing righteousness and justice means loving neighbor itself, feeding hungry, housing the homeless, embracing the immigrant, welcoming the outcast. Doing righteousness and justice means challenging the politics of oppression. It means subverting economic systems that dehumanize. Doing righteousness and justice is about exposing idolatry that blinds and deafens and dumps. Love one another, is John's way of saying, live like Jesus, love like Jesus, do righteousness and justice. Let your life be the point where heaven and earth intersect. For this, here, this material world, is the arena in which the kingdom has come in the person of Jesus and continues to come in the lives of those who follow him. Our faith was never meant to be otherworldly. Our faith should not be escapist. It shouldn't be all about spiritual experiences but void of loving neighbor. The fruit of our faith is to be widows and orphans incorporated into new families, transformed neighborhoods where people are not reduced to commodities. Remember that Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our question has been, Why does John, in the face of crisis, born of a dispute regarding Christ's humanity, why does he remind the church to love one another? Why this as his response? As I read this package of letters, especially the cover letter that we are exploring tonight, I hear John saying, our very calling is to be a force of love in this world. Our love for Jesus finds an expression in loving neighbor. Henri Nouwen put it this way. The spiritual life does not remove us from the world, but leads us deeper into it. Our second question, and we can only address this briefly because I feel like I'm taking some time. How are we to make sense of John's instruction to, extend hospita- to not extend hospitality? We know that Jesus taught us to love our enemies. We know that he ate with sinners and tax collectors. He, taught us, he told us that if we show hospitality to the least of these, we do it for him. 
I wonder if we sometimes don't jump to those passages pretty excited about what this radical Jesus is about. And sometimes we miss that Jesus might not have been quite so hospitable to the so-called insiders, those who kind of championed a religion that oppressed people and kept people in their place. It doesn't appear that Jesus showed or extended a particular amount of hospitality to the Pharisees, for example. Um, He kind of more often called them out. Like Jesus, I think John is confronting what we call an internal issue. A quick read of John's gospel, uh, John's sermon, sorry, will show that John is all about extending hospitality. The issue here is not, the issue here is an internal one. It's about leadership. It's about influence. Too much is at stake. The very health of the church, the health of the witness of the gospel is under threat. And there's a bunch of people that are grasping for power, grasping for influence within the community. And John says, by welcoming these false teachers, the church condones wrong living and wrong doctrine. By sharing in communion with the false teachers, we share in their wickedness, is what he says. And note that John doesn't make any exclusion for how big a crowd they're pulling. He doesn't kind of say, oh, well, people are getting saved, and the crowds are coming. He says, if we're with them, we're in it with them. If we condone them, we're a partner with them. So the question is, who is having influence? Who is shaping the practice of the community? John is deeply concerned that the shape of the church's faith will reflect a denial of God's good creation. Instead of being a church that meets the needs of neighbor, instead of being a church that cares for creation and stewards the gifts that God has given, there is a very real possibility that the church's theology, influenced by this Gnostic dualism, will become irrelevant, an irrelevant spiritual pursuit disconnected from neighbor and place. Luke Timothy Johnson puts it this way. The refusal of hospitality in this case is therefore not an act of hostility towards individual persons, but a defense measure against error and evil by a community fighting to maintain its own identity. Love one another. It's about our identity as the people of God. The message, as so often it does, helps us get to the heart of this matter. It puts things this way. If anyone shows up who doesn't hold to this teaching, and he's talking about false teachers, don't invite him in and give him the run of the place. I just want to take this little phrase, a really helpful place, run of the place or run of the house. We find the message uses this in a couple of other places. In Colossians and John, John's sermon that we've just been looking at. In Colossians, Paul writes this. Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing. And cultivate thankfulness. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. And John says it like this. God is love. When we take up permanent residence in a life of love, we live in God and God lives in us. This way, love has the run of the house, becomes at home and mature in us. He's saying, don't let this false teaching have the run of the house. If we are to be a people of God, the people of God, a people who reflect his character into the world, 
a community of love, a force of love, then let what we heard from the very beginning have run of the house. That is, let love and the command to love one another have the run of the house. This is our big message from a tweet-sized little book. So I want to ask tonight, as we conclude, what or who has the run of the house? What or who have you welcomed into your life and give room and hospitality to? In a world that wants to change the story regarding Jesus, in a world that seeks to customize God at every turn in order to free, to be free from ethical demands about loving God and loving neighbor, will we let love one another and all that that entails regarding our identity as the people of God, will we let love one another have run of the house? Let's stand together and worship, contemplate these things. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.